Um, before, for very long, um, we do let the kids stay in for the first couple songs. We want them to see that they're a part of our church family, to ask those questions as they grow up as to why we're singing, who we're singing to, what do words mean. Um, and, and, so, and then we, we save the bulk of our worship for actually after the sermon. We do that intentionally as well. We don't want to see songs and music and the emotions that it can stir as the means to get us through a sermon. But that God most clearly, most often speaks through his words, through his word. And that we then want to worship and sing and respond to the truth of what God has revealed about himself this morning. And so if you're thinking, hey, we didn't sing long enough, there will be more singing to come. So chapter 11 of Hebrews is a really familiar, um, for those who have grown up in church passage, it's, it's got a lot of nicknames, the Hall of Faith um, is one. As it, it just walks through a lot of the history of the Old Testament and the, the people of God. And remember, Hebrews is a book, a letter that was written to a church that had a Jewish background. So it's Jewish background believers who are now Christians, right? And they're struggling with the fact that Christianity is illegal, that things are difficult, that they're being pressured, that they're being persecuted. And they're wondering... What if I just lay Jesus aside and go back to, our, to Judaism, the legal religion? Would it make my life easier? And so the author is continuing to just write and say, hey, no, no, listen, Jesus, he's better. He's better. He is more sufficient. He will satisfy. He will take care of you. And so just chapter after chapter after chapter, we've seen him hold Jesus up and say, take another look. Consider him again. Consider him in light of the priestly system. Consider him in light of these different situations and things. And so it's important. It's one of the reasons that we take books and just preach through them verse by verse, chapter by chapter, week after week. It's because we want to see the connections. In chapter 11, as as famous as it is, chapter 10 really isn't as much. And yet it's going to be hard for us to understand chapter 11 without having been in chapter 10 over the last couple weeks, seeing those necessary connections. And so let's pick up chapter 11 Beginning in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. 
By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man in him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's where we're going to stop this morning. So we, we live in a culture, right, a society that seems to be moving away from faith, away from the things of God, and yet we are a people of faith whether you believe in God or not, right? Like that we put our faith in things and in situations maybe more often and more frequently um, than you would have even considered, right? That, that today, you, most of you do not grab your chair, check the legs, make sure that the bolts weren't coming out, you know, put a foot in it, like you just sit down and none of you fell, right? You put your faith in the chair or maybe you put your faith in the people who put the chairs out, right? That they're not playing a joke on you. And so if you had a sibling who used to do that to you, right? You did not put your faith in them, right? We put our faith in um, people who cook at restaurants, right? You're not asking for a tour before you get your meal. Maybe some places you should, Right? Um, Carmen and I were at a restaurant in Yemen one time where we looked back after we were eating our food and we saw like a camel um, drinking out of the kitchen sink through the window. And you're thinking, we maybe should have asked some more questions, right? Like, maybe should not have had so much faith in the fact that this establishment should be an establishment, right? Um, that we put our faith in, in different things, whether it's the government or doctors or water fountains, right? Like, we put, and some of you are thinking, hey, I question a lot of those things. There, but there is something that you put your faith in without a lot of, of questioning. And here's the thing. What chapter 11 is going to begin with is that we don't put our faith in things that are seen. We put our faith in things that aren't seen. We hope in. And so he begins with just in verses 1 through 3 of just kind of beginning to give us this idea, this definition, this introduction of what faith is going to look like. And he says, so faith is the assurance of things hoped for, right? Things that you don't yet have in your hand, the convictions of things not yet seen. And he continues in verse two, for by it, the people of old received their commendation. And so he is beginning, what he's doing here is he's going to tie us back into chapter 10. Do you remember the last verse of chapter 10 last week? Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In chapter 10, he's told us, look, we have access to God. We we, we can get to him through Jesus, who has torn down the veil, who has given us access through his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's how we go. And so we should draw near to God because we actually have access now. That's why we don't have the, the priestly system and the sacrificial system any longer. And yet he's writing to a group of believers who are, are looking to shrink back. Who are considering walking away from belief and faith in Jesus and going back to a religion, right, that has nothing for them any longer. And so he's saying, don't, don't do it. 
And he even reminds them, you once, you, were, you had your, your goods and they were jo- plundered, taken from you. And you joyfully accepted it because you saw that there was a reward bigger than those things. That you saw that God is doing something and at work in you in a way that is going to bring you a better reward than the things that were taken from you. And so he's really asking and answering the question, how do we endure? Like, how should they endure when tomorrow, right, someone might kick in their door? When tomorrow someone might take something from them? He's ministering to them and saying, listen, I've, I've given you the theological that Jesus is better. I've reminded, that you, reminded you that you've been through this before. But how else would we endure? I'm going to give you some examples. And I'm going to illustrate to you some other people who didn't yet have all that they were hoping in. And yet how they continued to exhibit faith in the midst of it. Because think about this. We don't, we don't like to be alone. And so whatever circumstances you have in your life, most often, more often than not, you are looking for someone who has had a similar circumstance because you don't want to feel alone. You want someone to lean on. You want someone to follow. You want someone who understands. Right? So I can't tell you how many times in, in marriage counseling, some, a couple will ask, have you ever seen a marriage as bad as ours? And they're not like boasting, right? They're not saying like, yeah, like it's bad, right? What they're saying is, can we come back from this? Have you seen another one that has looked like this that, that we can come back from? Right? They're looking for hope. They're looking for encouragement. Right? Um, if you've had a health scare or a prognosis that was scary, right, you're immediately looking, who else has had this? What's the situation they've been through? How can they encourage me? How can they give me hope? Um, when we this year realized we were going to have a third baby, right? A little, fur, a little further removed than we would have ever planned to. And I'm looking at the span of our kids and I'm going, okay, that's not how we would have written it up. Who else has kids spanned like the way we do? And you start looking and you realize, oh, there's a lot of people that have done this. Okay, we're going to be all right, right? But you're looking for commonality. You're looking for to not be alone. And so he mentions, and he's going to begin to encourage and to exhort them with some examples of people who endured and why faith played a role in their ability to endure. And if the, the people that he is writing this letter to are going to endure, that they're going to need similar faith. And so verse 3, he mentions the universe that God created it, like he spoke it out of nothing, and he brought it into existence. And then all of the examples he's going to give us that we're going to look at this morning are going to come from Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, 5, 6 through 9, 12, and 18. And so he continues in verse 4. The first example, these are in chronological order. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. And so the story that he's going to give us here of those who did not shrink back is first is Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. And that both of them were, they brought a sacrifice to the Lord. Right? And, and one's was accepted, Abel's, and Cain's was not. And Cain ends up murdering his brother when he realizes that God has approved of and accepted his sacrifice and has rejected his own. And he kills his brother. And he says, look, through his faith, though he died in verse 4, he still speaks. And so what we see is that, that Abel offered in faith a sacrifice that was accepted. Now listen, we, we, there are all sorts of 
thoughts as to why his was accepted and why Cain's wasn't. But ultimately, if you look at Proverbs 15.8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. And then in 1 John, we're told right, that, that Abel was, was righteous. And so what we're reminded that even in the sacrificial system was this, that it was never about the sacrifice itself. It was about the heart of the worshiper. And so were they going through the motions? Were they doing what was necessary to get God off their back? Right? It's why in Isaiah 1, he says, I hate your worship. In Amos, he says the same thing. Like, it stinks to me. Because you're going through the motions, but your heart is far from me. And so it doesn't, it doesn't appease me. It doesn't please me. And so Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God because he had a, a heart of faith that was honoring and giving to God. In Cain's, he was going through the motions. He was giving something. And yet his heart was far from the Lord. Enoch is the next one mentioned. Verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. And before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Where he's referring to is is actually Genesis 5. Beginning in verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. So he takes this brief mention in a genealogy of just two or three verses. And he says, right, like Enoch pleased God with his faith. And because of it, he didn't taste death. And so it's beginning to ask, like, what is it that God desires from us? What is it that God wants from us? And we're reminded of this again in another Old Testament passage in Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? And so we see Enoch is an example of one who loved justice, who had faith, who walked humbly with his God. And so he's taking these familiar stories, these familiar people from their past, from their experience, and he's beginning to to draw out this idea of faith. He continues with with a third in verse 6. Sorry, verse 7, with Noah. By faith, right, he continues, by faith Abel in verse 4, in verse 5, by faith Enoch. Now in verse 7, by faith Noah. Being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And so where Abel offered sacrifices in faith, where Enoch pleased God with his faith, Noah is obedient and shows like this reverent fear in faith. That something that had not yet been seen, like a flood of this magnitude of rain itself, that he, he puts himself out there in faith, trusting that what God has said is sufficient and it's enough. And he begins to build a boat on dry ground with no water right to put it on. And so he is mocked and he is humiliated and he is scorned by a wicked generation. And yet in faith, he is trusting God. That what God has said is sufficient. That things that aren't seen. And so he would have been, this would have been seen as absurd. And this is the one that maybe has some of the most correlation for you now. 
Right? Like that as you think of the second coming and people are like, yeah, where's God? If he was coming, he would have come. And they would begin to mock this second coming, this rescue of God, of us, by God, as absurd. And yet, in the same way, Noah, knowing that there was a rescue provided, had begun to act in a way that he trusted that what God had said was going to come to, come to fruition. And when people believed, it was too late. And in the second coming, right, like when the, when the sky is split and Jesus steps back into history again, right, you will either be the one in reverent fear who has trusted and obeyed and who has been waited on him and recognizes him as your rescuer, your king, and your savior, or you will bow a knee in fear because you were wrong and it's too late. Right, like this is, this is what's going on that Noah is showing reverent fear. And in his faith, it is condemning those who do not have faith. The fourth is this, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that, was to receive, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And so we see this call in Genesis 12. And in Joshua 24, it tells us that Abraham and his family were pagans. They worshipped many gods, other gods. Like he was not a man who was following after God. And so God says, man... Let's do something here. God reaches down and rescues this man, calls him and says, I've got something for you and it's a place that I'm going to take you. And he doesn't even tell him where. He just says, I want you to follow me to go. And Abraham, in faith, gets partial information and says, I'll follow you. I'll obey you. I'll trust you. And he goes. He doesn't get all the information But his obedience revealed the same heart that Abel had. That, right, it was a heart of trust. It was a heart of of sacrifice. And his obedience then showed what was going on in him internally. And then he continues with Abraham's wife, Sarah. Verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she had considered him faithful who had promised now, I love verse 12. Therefore, from one man, meaning Abraham, and him as good as dead, right? Like just saying, he was old, right? That, that these, this 90 and this 100-year-old, right? That God gives them a child, which is where the nation of Israel will, will come from. Where we are recipients of this blessing today that the gospel has come to us. That the stars and the sand that cannot be numbered are the descendants of this promise that is given in Genesis 12. And then in Genesis 18. That she considered him faithful and because of it she conceived and had descendants. Now listen, if you're familiar with your Old Testament stories, you know especially for these last three. Because with Abel, his life and his story is short. For Enoch, we get like two or three verses. But for Noah, Abraham and Sarah, there's some shame for them in scripture too. Right, like that Noah is a drunk in a tent, and his sons, right, look upon, one of his sons looks upon his nakedness, right? This, this shameful scene for this man of God. And as we think about Abraham, right, that he's willing to try to, to make God's plan work by taking Hagar, one of Sarah's servants, and I'll have a child through her because we're not going to wait upon God in his faithfulness, right? So even though he has been faithful and obedient, we see signs and times where he's not. And if you remember Sarah's story well, when God tells her, right, when she hears she's going to have a, a pregnancy, she laughs. She's like, 
Me? Yeah, I don't think so. Right? And, and, and the response is, is there is anything too much for God? Right? And so in all three of these, we see right, drunkenness, we see um, infidelity, we see laughter, we see people who were once pagans being used because God is faithful. And the point is that it's God's faithfulness, not our own. Right? It's, it's what He is doing, not what we're doing. And one of the things I love about Hebrews 11, that it includes these, and because Scripture has already included their faults and their failures. Right? That people know the stories of their victories, but it, we also know some of the stories of their defeats. And that Sarah, she doesn't really get redeemed in Genesis 18. But what we see is that she doesn't root herself in her unbelief or her bitterness or her laughter. That she comes to trust that God is faithful and that he'll do what he's promised. Right? That we see her redemption in Genesis 11, or sorry, in Hebrews 11, after not getting it in Genesis 18. Look at verse 12. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. This is about God's faithfulness. That they took God at his word when he called, when he spoke, when he ministered. And then they directed their steps. They organized their life in order to show that they trusted and believed. The way that they showed faith is they followed, they acted, they did in accordance to what God had called them to. So Abraham showed faith not by saying, yeah, I believe that. He went and he lived as a nomad in tents in in a land that he was promised. Right? That Noah, okay, God, I believe you're sending a flood. It wasn't sufficient. He built an ark. Right? That Sarah, right, had a baby and raised this child. And so look at verse 13 now. We have these five examples of those who did not shrink back, who showed faith, and in, in, in their faith they were able to endure. And now verse 13, right, you almost feel the crescendo rising. And these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Right? And you just feel the crescendo crash. That he's laid out these biblical heroes and he says, look, look at the faith they had. Look at the things they hoped in and they were promised and they didn't get it. And you're like, well, is this supposed to be encouraging? But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. We need to go back to verse 1 for a second. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The convictions of things not seen. Now listen to verse 13. These died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. He's saying, look, they have less than you have. Because you get not the shadow, you get the reality. You have Jesus. And he says, listen, the way that the old saints of the Old Testament were saved is the same way that we're saved. It's in faith in the Redeemer. It's in faith in the Rescuer. It's in faith in Jesus. And they were looking forward, believing that God would do what he had promised, that he would do what he said. And so they're saying, God, you're going to give us this inheritance. You're going to save us. You're going to rescue us. And so we're longing and hoping for that. And now he's saying, so they didn't shrink back and they did not get in this life all that was promised to them. So you can almost hear the exhortation, the teaching here. So church, you now have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
you have been seen Jesus in the flesh, right? He's lived the life that you were meant to and died the death that you deserved and beaten sin and Satan and death and lives today. You have him and you get to look back and see that God has done what he said he would do. And you're going to shrink back? How could you begin to? Right? He is encouraging and exhorting them. That the Old Testament saints saw only dimly. They saw only shadows. And yet we get the reality. They were strangers and exiles. Not making this world their home. We look back to Hebrews 3. And we're reminded that the point is. He says I want us to get to the promised land together. I want us to get to the Father together. Where our souls will rest. And so we're going to lock arms church. And we're going to struggle and strive to get there. Right? First Peter 2, verse 11. says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, as travelers, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He's saying, Are you, do you need this reminder that you too, this isn't your home. You're a traveler, a sojourner, an alien here, headed to where you belong. And where we belong is a city, right? A city in verse 10, that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, right? In comparison to the tents that he was currently living in, in a place that was not his home, whose designer and builder is God. And then look down to verse 15. Sorry, verse 14. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. He's like, they were looking and headed somewhere. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. So he's saying, listen, they had the chance to go back to where they they started. He's looking at the church here that he's writing to in Hebrews and saying, you want to go back. But if you go back, you miss the promised land. You miss the city built by God. You miss Jesus. And you're forsaking all of it. They did not, and they had less than you. So for you who have more than them... Would you not shrink back? Would you endure? So, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Church, you please God with faith. Faith that says that He is who He has claimed to be. That you are trusting it, that you are treasuring it, that you are like your soul is satisfied that God is who he has claimed to be, that he is who he has revealed himself to be. And that we draw near because we have faith that what Jesus has secured for us at the cross and through his resurrection is sufficient for us to draw near to God. And he doesn't feel any need to explain why this pleases God. He just says it does to draw near in faith, to know that you're pleasing him because you're trusting him. Listen, there is a possibility that you would walk out of chapter 10 hearing of the plundering of their property, of prison stays, of of being mocked and humiliated and ridiculed. And then you begin to walk into chapter 11 and you see these people walking in faith and not getting what was promised to go, man, Christianity kind of has a bad deal. Like we're a forlorn people. And yet that's not at all what the author is saying. He's not saying, hey, suck it up and make it. He's saying there is a greater reward. And you are no fool to hold out for the greater thing. 
That you are in fact wise to see the better and and more permanent and eternal thing that is coming. Because you could be really engaged in this life and miss the better, more eternal thing. Or you can put your eyes on that and see what they saw. Right? And so the idea here is this. You might look crazy in this life. Noah looked crazy. Having heard from God and building an ark when it had never rained. Abraham would have looked crazy to have left his gods behind to follow out into a land that he didn't actually know where he was going to trust God. Right? Like, they looked crazy. And so you may sit at a holiday table, a Christmas table this year, and your family or your friends may think you're crazy for some of the decisions that you're making in your life. Because they don't see what you see. They don't know what you know. And it may be it's because they don't know Jesus. Or it may be that like the, the parable of the four soils in Mark 4. That they have had their trust and belief in Jesus choked out by riches. And by concer- con- cares and concerns of the world. And so Jesus isn't at the forefront anymore. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah Jesus. But really, look, look at what we're doing. Look at what we're accumulating. Look at what we have. Church... <laughs> Do you look at someone who's crazy, who, who picks up their life and just moves overseas to say, I'm going to go to a hard place and tell people about Jesus? Right? I'm, I'm going to not take the better paying job because it's going to take my more time away from ministry and my family and those that I'm pursuing. And this is enough. This is sufficient. Right? When most of the world is saying, get as much as you can, take more, have more, get more. That's God's blessing. And we're saying, no, I'm going to make the decision that lets me be more present. Right? And that's not that that's always the situation. Right? But would, would you look at someone and say, you're crazy for not doing that? Right? Would you... Would we be a people that have our eyes fixed to Jesus? That as we hear Him lead and guide and call, that we would make decisions that's not as concerned with what the world says, it's not as concerned with where the culture is flowing, that would allow people to, to mock us or humiliate us or to say we're fools because we have our eyes on a treasure that far surpasses anything this world can offer. Right? That is the faith that we're being called to. And so we take jobs in dangerous places and we, we allow our, our fortunes to be plundered joyfully because this wasn't our hope, our peace, our reward anyway. But Jesus is. And so this life is not about your comfort. It is not about ease. And it's not about making this place home. It's about being a sojourner and a traveler on your way to God the Father through Jesus for all time and all eternity. And Jesus is the reward. Matthew 25 says that we should long for the day where he will look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? That you acted as if, as in Noah. You acted as in Abraham. That you followed after Jesus. That your life revealed the trust and the treasure in your heart via obedience. That we don't return to the things that we had before. That we trust Him and that we treasure Him. If you want a quick definition of faith, that's it. It's like it's, you're trusting and treasuring that Jesus is sufficient. And so that we live then as exiles with our hope in the future. Because church, 
a warning for all of us is there is no drifting and no coasting in faith that pleases God. We don't just get on a tube and make it there, floating. There is diligent energy expended, time put forth to strive, to cling, to walk. Now listen, those things do not save you. But in our salvation, in the fact that Jesus has rescued us by his faithfulness, not ours, that we then walk in the good works that we've been created for. Right? Pursuing him. Showing that we're trusting him. Look at even just a few of the things in in chapter 11 so far in the first 16 verses. In verse 3, faith sees the fingerprints of God in creation where others can miss it and be blind to it. Right? In verse 4, faith offers acceptable worship. Right? Not arrogant or stinking worship. In verse 5, faith pleases God. In verse 7, faith heeds the warning of God and then obeys accordingly. In verse 8, faith obeys whether they have all the information or not. In verse 13, faith shows trust and hope. And in verse 16, faith longs for the day where we will be with Jesus for all time and we will see and we will have and we will hold. Listen, Jesus is faithful. And at the right time, he stepped into human history to rescue us. And at the right time, he will step back into human history one final time to redeem, to bring the new heavens and the new earth. And we have the Holy Spirit, who's a down payment, a seal of the promises of God. They are true and that they are sufficient. We can look back on the cross and on his resurrection and say he has done what he said he would do. He will continue to be faithful to do what he's has said he would do. Can you see that? Right? Like, can you see and trust these things that those around you might not be able to see and trust? Would we end with these two thoughts? Would we fix our eyes upon him of who he has revealed himself to be, who he has said that he is, what his character is like, what he has done in the past? As a down payment is what he will do in the future. Would we fix our eyes upon him so that we can trust and treasure and have faith in him? And second. Would we pray for things that only he can do? Because Sarah received something that she couldn't do. Are we praying like that for one another? Are we praying for God to work and to move and to intervene in a way that he would receive the glory? Because I can't take credit. I'm a 90-year-old pregnant person, right? Like, so are we, are we willing to pray for marriages that right now seem irreparable? That God would redeem and restore and renew? Are we willing to pray for conversions of those who right now would spit in the face of Jesus? Who war against him, who have angst against him, who have hate against him. To know that once we were too, even if we weren't that angry, that we were all once the enemies of God. Except by the cross, we aren't any longer by his grace. Would we ask God to reconcile relationships that seem too far gone? In family and in friends. In former friends. Are we asking God to break sin patterns and addiction that seem like it's got a grip that will not be removed? Are we asking God to do the things by faith that we see that he is able and willing to do?
trusting as we draw near that he is pleased by that to reveal himself. So, would we fix our eyes upon the author and the perfecter and the finisher of our faith? And would we ask him to continue to do the things that he has done for the good of others and for his glory? The band is going to come back up at this point. We're going to enter a time of worship. If you need to repent of a lack of faith, there'll be some folks in the back of the room that you can talk to. If you need to grab someone around you to pray with you, that's fine. If you want to stand, you stand. If you want to sit, you sit. If you need someone just to pray of, of that prayer that we see in the Gospels of, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, let someone pray that for you. Right? If you see Jesus... Would you thank him this morning that you have eyes to see that he has given you? And if you don't, would you ask him to give them to you? That we would live a life that looks foolish in this world because we're living for the wiser thing. Let's pray. Jesus, you are far better, far more faithful, and far more beautiful than we can imagine. God, we want to please you. And you tell us here that we can please you with faith and trusting and treasuring you. So, Father, for the things that are blocking that, that are locking us up, God, would you move them out of the way? Father, would we be diligent to keep our eyes affixed to you, our attention on you, that we wouldn't be okay with coasting or drifting that is ultimately leading us further from you? Father, would we be a family A church here like the church in Hebrews that is persevering, that is not shrinking back, that is pursuing you and going to endure until the day we're home with you. Would you speak?